This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This week, the country watched the agonizing death of George Floyd again. My knee. You can't My knee. in, man. I'm through. I know you are never going to listen. The trial of the former officer accused of killing him is now underway in Minneapolis. Last May, the case sparked protests across the country. There were calls for justice and police reform. The country has changed. But has the relationship between community and police changed? That's what we'll explore today on America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Hello, I'm Jeff Begays, filling in for Gil Gross. I was in Minneapolis last year, just hours after George Floyd's death. It is one of the first network correspondents on the scene. I saw the eruption of a social justice movement that has changed the country. And this week, as Derek Chauvin's trial started and jurors saw that disturbing video, the Floyd family had its supporters across the country pulling for them to get the justice others across the country feel they have been denied. Sadly and unfortunately, I, I can't identify with the Floyd family and so many other families that have gone through this. And it's, it, it's an unbearable pain and it never goes away. You know, for this kid to have had his life stolen from him, from this officer, from a police officer. DeRavis Thomas is still waiting for the officer who shot his son in 2016 to go on trial. DeRavis Kane Roberts was 22 years old when he was shot in the head by former Atlanta officer James Burns. I spoke with DeRavis, or D. Thomas as he likes to be known, and his attorney, Sean Williams, who was the managing partner at the Cochran firm in Atlanta. What obstacles, D., have you faced trying to get the justice that you think your son deserves? Um, man, what obstacle haven't we faced? As far as the city of Atlanta taking responsibility for the actions of the officer that they hired, it's been like pushing a pyramid uphill. You don't think they've done enough? They haven't done anything. If you're familiar with the way the city operates in situations like this, the city council is involved, the mayor's office is involved, the mayor is involved, and... I feel like we have gotten less than zero of cooperation from either of them. It's as if really they don't even want to acknowledge um, that the officer, former officer uh, Burns, was at fault. You know, if if a Coca-Cola truck hits you and kills you, Coca-Cola is responsible for that driver's actions because they hired that driver. And a police officer works for a city or whatever government entity that they work for. If they do anything malicious while in employment of that entity, they, that, that entity is responsible. We're being fought on this like 
from every direction, from every direction. Sean, you have been critical of the mayor. Uh, has there been any response to that critique? And, and what have you been trying to urge her to do? Well, I have been critical. I, I've been critical of not only the mayor, but the city council of Atlanta, as well as the city of Atlanta law department. And the reason I've been critical is we are unique in this city. We are the birthplace of civil rights, the home of Martin Luther King. We stand for so much, not only in our history, but in our future. The mayor has done a very good job nationally advocating against um, social injustice, criminal injustice. And when cases like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor occurred across this nation, she used her national stage and reputation to talk about the injustice in those cases. The reason I'm so critical is I am glad that the mayor stood up for those instances. But there's families like Kane Rogers' family. There's families all across this city before the Breonna Taylor and the George Floyds that have not gotten justice from this city. And the mayor, Mayor Bottoms, is mayor now, but she was city council. She was part of the staff of the prior administration, Kasim Reed. And so I've been very, very critical because you cannot stand publicly and injustice in other situations and not stand for injustice in your own town. D, you're one of the, the few people out there who can identify with what the Floyd family is going through. Can you describe the pain of losing a son in the manner in which you did? Definitely, Joe. Sadly and unfortunately, I, I can identify with the Floyd family and so many other families that have gone through this. And it's, it, it's an unbearable pain and it never goes away. It, it, it never goes away. You live with it. You go to sleep with it. You wake up with it. it you know, it just is now a part of your life. You know, had, had we lost Cain to natural causes, that his death would have been tragic and it would have been painful. But there would have been an understanding that death happens. But, you know, for this kid to have had his life stolen from him, from this officer, from a police officer, you know, the very same person that takes an oath to protect you as a citizen, you know, to have have his life stolen from him and for it to be disregarded as if it was just a normal day on the job for a police officer. That's a lot. And it, and it takes a lot out of you every day. Do you think the Floyd family is going to get the justice that they want? I'm praying for their family. I'm hoping and very prayerful for their family because I know what it's like to not get justice, and I would like for them to at least be one of the first families to actually get justice. I, I would love to celebrate them receiving justice, even though we can't celebrate us receiving justice. Sean, why do you think it's so hard to convict a cop? I think it's difficult for a couple of reasons. People have the assumption that when police officers are involved in shootings or use of force, that it automatically must be justified because the individual must have been doing something wrong. The, the thing that made George Floyd significant is because someone recorded what happened and we saw it. You can't deny what, what you see on that video. It brought attention to something that has been going on in the dark forever. And so that makes it difficult because people's narrative and perceptions before you even get to it, is that the cop is justified. Number two, the laws are so difficult. The standard that we hold officers to with qualified immunity and criminal standards of 
imminent danger or reasonableness that they felt that they were in danger is very difficult to, from a legal standard, to overcome in light of the fact that you got these officers who get come to these courtrooms in their suits and ties and their history saying, I was just doing what I was trained to do. I was doing what I was everybody else done. And how can you make me criminally responsible for something? I just made a mistake. The legal standard needs to be changed, Jeff. The qualified immunity, all the criminal standards needs to be changed. Because the standard of murder and taking someone's life should be the same for an officer, in my view, as it is for anybody walking down the street. If you commit a negligible murder, you should be tried just like everybody else. If you intentionally, like we have in James Burns' case, without evidence, say, you know what, just because I can't stop you, I'm going to shoot you in the head to stop you, that's murder. When we start making the standards in the legal system the same as for everybody, the officers need to follow just like everybody else, I think that's when we're going to get verdicts. The civil rights movement really, really got started because we got to see people being brutally shot, killed as they're going across a bridge in Alabama. (laughs) This is happening in this time because of that video. And we need to force officers to be held accountable. We need to be making sure they have body cams because until this is visualized constantly, we're going to have the same problem where officers get away with it in the dark. But it's been 10 months since George Floyd's death. Has anything really changed between police and community? Jeff, honestly, I think the only thing I think the only thing that has changed the George Floyd case just just brought a wider awareness that this actually happened. I agree with D, Jeff. Justice Clarence Thomas, who is the most conservative judge on the bench, has suggested time and time in opinions that something needs to be done with qualified immunity. The way it's set up now was not the way it should have that it was intended for. And what is what has happened is it's given officers a free bite of the apple to kill innocent citizens. A spokesman for Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom sent us a statement saying, quote, public safety is a top priority for this administration. This incident occurred under a previous administration, and we will not comment on what they did or did not require. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays, filling in for Gil Gross. It is difficult to convict police officers. According to the Police Integrity Research Group at Bowling Green State University, between 2005 and 2019, there were 139 officers charged with murder or manslaughter after an on-duty shooting, but only 44 have been convicted. In 2015, former North Charleston, South Carolina officer Michael Slager shot and killed Walter Scott. Slager fired eight shots. Three of them hit Scott in the back. Slager was convicted, and he is now serving a 20-year sentence. Jared Fishman won that case as a civil rights prosecutor for the Department of Justice. He is now the founder and executive director of Justice Innovation Lab, which is an organization that develops data-driven solutions to create a more equitable criminal justice system. Jared, you are a senior civil rights prosecutor with the Department of Justice. You prosecuted cases involving police officers. How hard is it to get a conviction? 
It's really hard to get convictions of police officers. Jurors are often really loath to second-guess the decisions that police officers make in the line of duty. And I think in recent years, as there's been more attention drawn to the issues of police misconduct, while that's strengthened the ability of some jurors to understand and, and, and question the conduct of police officers, it's really hardened the perceptions of other potential jurors. And so it's quite often that you see in one of these cases, you wind up with a hung jury just because jurors can't agree. And one of the cases that you worked on involved Michael Slager, a North Charleston, South Carolina officer who shot Walter Scott in the back in April of 2015. It was another incident that was also caught on camera. When you saw that video the first time, did you think that, I don't know, that it was an open and shut case? Absolutely. The first time I saw that video, I thought this was the most egregious case of police misconduct that's ever been captured on video. Uh, Michael Slager fires eight shots as Walter Scott is running away, ultimately from distances that we determined to be between 18 and 45 feet away. And so it seemed clear to me when I first saw that video that, yeah, this would be an easy conviction for the state. But obviously it wasn't. No. And I think one of the things that we have been accustomed to is now that we see things on videos, it appears very clear to us, uh, to many of us and what we're seeing. But as it turns out, lots of people have different perceptions of the same video. Uh, when we were picking jurors in that particular case, we asked people, have you seen the video? What did you think? And while overwhelmingly people who had seen the video thought it was an example of misconduct, plenty of others came out and said they believed that Michael Slager acted in self-defense. And so when you see that disturbing videotape of Derek Chauvin pressing his knee into George Floyd's neck, what do you think? Could some of the jurors see this disturbing tape differently? You know, it, it's it's always what's not on the tape that's going to be the focus of the defense case, whether that's trying to blame the victim and looking at George Floyd's drug use, whether it's looking at the crowds of people that were gathering and talking about how he felt under attack, whether it's about just emphasizing the difficulties of being a police officer in modern America. There are plenty of buttons that the defense will push on, and if they can find a receptive audience and at least one juror, possibly more. That's all it takes to get a divided jury in a case like this. Have you and do you, when you're prosecuting a case, watch how a defendant reacts to certain pieces of evidence or certain testimony in the courtroom? Sure. What I've found remarkable often is is the lack of reaction from many police officers as damning uh, evidence continues to be shown against them. Very straight-faced, very even-keeled. And I think that often makes it more difficult for jurors to understand what what is this person thinking. Do they feel remorse? Do they feel that they were justified in what they did? Everyone's looking for those body languages to give us those signals. Uh, and, and what they see will probably shape their interpretation of, of whether or not any force was justified at all or, or whether or not Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. I noticed that Derek Chauvin was, he had a a yellow notepad and you know it was hard to tell whether he was writing anything but he often had his head down do defense attorneys tell their clients to to not react to try to focus on other things uh, i would imagine so i've never <laughs> i've never been privy to what defense counsel have been uh counseling their clients but i, I think you know, what police officers want to show is that they are respectable, that they are following the law, that these uh, that they were 
appointed to positions of power uh, for good reason. And so that's what the defense wants the jury to see of, of their client. Michael Slager ultimately pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to 20 years behind bars. But now an, a new judge is taking another look at the case. You're probably not surprised that he's trying to have the sentence overturned. No, I think it's standard when anyone gets a long sentence um, to try to appeal that and, and to reduce that. How do you, looking back now on that case, um, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about the result? And do you think it's led to change? Well, you know, I think a lot of times when we as society see uh, such disturbing deaths on video and we see such disturbing misconduct by police officers, the reaction is often to say, we want to prosecute that person. We want to hold them accountable. And I think that that is definitely a component of healing, of moving forward, of building a society. But far more important than any individual's accountability is understanding our collective responsibility to build a public safety system that treats uh, communities equal and equally and fairly. Um, after the Slager prosecution, I had a lot of conversations with the local prosecutor, uh, Scarlett Wilson, the solicitor in South Carolina, about some of the systemic problems that we were seeing in Charleston. Uh, in terms of over-policing of particular communities, whether or not there were disparities and arrests between African-American and white uh, defendants. And as it, as it turns out, it, there is. And so um, I've been working with the solicitor down in Charleston. I've left the Justice Department and founded the Justice Innovation Lab, where we use local data to try to ferret out systemic injustices occurring in the system and to correct them. Because what we see over and over and over again um, are, is the system itself creating adverse effects that's disproportionately affecting lower income and minority communities. And we've got to address that as well. So you're, based on the data that you're seeing, you're actually seeing data that shows that there is a difference in how people in lower income communities are treated versus those in higher income communities. Absolutely. And it's probably no surprise to people living in those communities. Uh, it's often surprise to people who don't live in those communities how policing is different, uh, how crime uh, is, is approached. And what we're hoping is to think more holistically about some of the problems underlying a lot of what we call crime. And America is awash with, with problems of mental health, addiction, homelessness, uh, and all too frequently, we've turned to the police to try to solve those problems, and we can't arrest our way out of these problems. We can't punish our way out of these problems. Uh, what we need to do is direct community resources to addressing poverty, uh, addressing poverty, addressing addiction, um, and really reserving the punitive nature of the criminal justice for the worst crimes. And so uh, we're working with communities to make sure that they're addressing public safety, but also doing it in a way that respects the rights uh, of the community. Was it was it ever clear why Michael Slager used that kind of force to stop Walter Scott? You know, we could only look to what he said. And quite frankly, I think his account of what happened that day just isn't credible. Uh, we know Walter Scott ran, and we know that he was getting away from Michael Slager. And uh, for whatever reason, Michael Slager didn't want that to happen and fired shots uh, that killed Walter Scott. Is it frustrating as a prosecutor when 
even the conclusion of a case doesn't bring all the answers. Absolutely. Uh, I've worked on a lot of cases where the conclusion of the case didn't bring the answers. Um, or even more dishearteningly, that when you've got a case where someone has been um, killed in the hands of law enforcement uh, in an unjustified way, that things don't get better. Uh, I think that's what communities are really demanding now. I think a lot of the focus right now has been on trying to address structural inequalities in our system in addition to just prosecuting police officers. Um, but I think prosecuting Derek Chauvin in this case and, and holding him accountable for the death is the first step. But what's even more vital is helping communities address some of the structures and relationships that undermine law enforcement and communities so that we can do a better job. But there are still a lot of people who doubt that Derek Chauvin will be held accountable. No, I think that's a very real poly, uh, a very real possibility that there's a hung jury. Uh, I think it's unlikely that he'll be wholly acquitted um, as, as one of the options, but there's definitely a possibility that there's a hung jury in this case. Um, all that being said, uh, the federal government still has a possibility of bringing charges in this case and holding Derek Chauvin accountable. Uh, it's almost certain that he won't work in law enforcement again. Uh, the family's received settlement for the death. Um, of course, none of those things will ever bring George Floyd back, but these are all these are all small steps into trying to get some accountability. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays filling in for Gil Gross. The International Association of Chiefs of Police is one of the most influential law enforcement organizations in this country. Both Republican and Democratic administrations look to its leadership for ideas on criminal justice and even appointments to influential government posts. The current president of the IACP is Cynthia Renault, who is also the former police chief in Santa Monica, California. Renault retired from the Santa Monica Police Department last October. During this summer's protest against police, she took a knee calling for peace. Her detractors called it a photo op, and the criticism continued until her retirement. I grew up in Long Beach, California, which is a pretty large city in Los Angeles County. My parents immigrated to the States in the 1960s, and so I, I have a, a bit of a, of a different background. My dad uh, actually fought in World War II for the Allies, and my parents were uh, a bit older when I was born. Um, so they were a, a generation ahead of where my friend's parents were. And my mom had traveled into the States. She came through Slovakia. And so she raised us really with some of her cultural um, traditions and beliefs. And then my dad's family came from France to Montreal, where, where they'd been for several generations. Um, 
one of the interesting things for me about growing up is that my dad became an American citizen and my mom never did. Uh, and I remember being at my dad's ceremony for, um, for becoming an American citizen. I couldn't have been more than seven at the time. And I still remember being in that room. What did your mom, if she knew what you planned to do, how did she feel about it? Well, my mom, um, was a brilliant legal mind. Uh, but in the 1940s, that career was not particularly open to a woman of her economic abilities. Uh, so she spent her career as a paralegal and she spent her career as uh, being known uh, for her mind, for her legal mind and for her abilities. And I think that without saying it, when she saw me doing something, a career that hadn't been open really to women um, 15 years or so before I started, I think she was proud of that. Uh, my mom was also pretty tough. So was my dad. Uh, and so I, I don't think that uh, that she had worries or concerns about the the type of job that I was getting into. And I, I think that they'd be proud of my choice to spend 30 years um, trying to stand for other people, stand for victims, stand for people who are in situations who cannot protect themselves, um, mentor youth that that I see and that I, I come to know uh, and just try generally to do good. And so as this trial in Minneapolis has unfolded this week. What do you think the reaction has been from law enforcement around the country? You know, the reaction, uh, I'll go back to when it happened. Um, myself included and many police chiefs came out immediately uh, and strongly condemning the actions and condemning what we saw in that video. And that's continued through this trial. What we're most concerned about now is how do we hold accountable the actions that occurred but still ensure and grow and nurture the relationships that we have all worked so hard to build with our individual communities. And so it's a twofold of, of standing with our communities to, um, to hold accountable and, and recognize what happened and also ensuring our communities that actions in one place are not reflective of 18,000 law enforcement nationwide and what we do every day. Are you concerned, as the president of the IACP, that Derek Chauvin has become the the poster child, if you will, the poster boy of law enforcement? Um, I don't feel that he has, and maybe that's because I'm I'm tied with community and with law enforcement officials who have officers nationwide that are working and doing the job every single day. Um, and I, I hope and I, and I do think and believe that those daily good contacts that we do will be reflective of the profession as a whole. And we have to ensure that he does not become and that this incident does not become, as you said, the poster child for our profession in totality. And that's what we're all working so hard to to prevent. Do you think he deserves to be convicted? Well, I think that that is up to the courts. And, um, you know, law enforcement is just one part of the criminal justice system, as we know. And now the rest of the criminal justice system in the form of the courts, the jury, 
the prosecuting and defense attorneys and judges uh, come into play. And so I will let them do their job. We'll have more America Change Forever right after this break. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays, filling in for Gil Gross. We return now to our conversation with Cynthia Renault about the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. Renault is the former chief of police in Santa Monica, California, and now the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Cynthia, Chauvin's attorney claims that Chauvin was doing what he was trained to do. Does the training teach officers to dig their knee into the neck of a suspect for nine minutes? I can't speak specifically to what training they're referencing in their particular agency or their particular state. I can speak to training in the three agencies that I've worked in and in the state of California. Um, and that that is is not training, as you phrased it, um, that, that we employ. When you see that video, how do you react to it? I think I react to it the same way that that everyone reacted to it. Uh, which is um, a bit of, of disbelief, misunderstanding of, of what we're seeing and, and how that situation occurred. In your professional opinion, what happened there? You know, that, that's a tough one, Jeff, because I'm not privy to any of the documentation or the facts or the reports from that. I can only, I mean, I'm speaking from the same base that everyone else is, which is is just what the media is reporting. So I think that that's a, um, a, a I can't I can't comment on that without without knowing the facts any further than than I already have. Has has the ICP had productive discussions with the Biden administration uh, about next steps in reform? It seems to me that the attorney general, it's something that he is interested in. What do you think is next for law enforcement uh, with the Biden Biden administration in Washington? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, the IACP has been very active communicating with the Biden administration, and it's it's wonderful to have those lines of communication open and engaged. Uh, We've been having a lot of uh, conversation about what the next steps are and really focusing on what's going to be effective um, and what meaningful legislation can be passed at the federal level to give police the policies, the tools, the techniques to do their job as safely and effectively as possible. And some of those specifics, again, go around uh, in emphasis on on funding and training for de-escalation techniques and tactics, um, mandatory participation in the use of force reporting database for agencies nationwide in order to foster and create that that level of transparency that all of our communities want. Um, Supporting a national decertification database so that police chiefs are hiring the right people. Um, Adoption of the IECP along with 10 other associations who signed on around the national consensus policy on use of force, which does talk about um, uh, uh, vascular restraints and banning them except in situations where deadly force would be authorized. Um, Implementing and improving recruiting, hiring, and promotion practices 
um, that really work to increase the efforts in the review of hiring standards, background investigations, targeted recruiting efforts, um, reviewing our current hiring standards and practices to ensure that we're really focused on diversity, on training and recruitment programs, and then also to enhance the ability of police agencies and police executives to implement effective discipline. Um, that is an area that often goes untalked about, but it's an important one. Um, certainly, police chiefs work with labor agreements, with civil service rules, with contracts. It can be difficult for police chiefs to remove problematic officers. Uh, and there are many examples of that nationwide of, of police chiefs who have terminated officers and then um, through a different variety of ways, these officers return to their jobs. So there's also room to look at the authority of management and disciplinary proceedings while respecting the labor unions, the labor agreements to ensure that we have the best and most qualified officers serving their communities. Correct me if you think I'm wrong, because I feel uh, after hearing the, the list of uh, initiatives that the IACP is trying to push with the Biden, Biden administration and Congress, I feel like we've been here before. Uh, post Eric Garner, post Michael Brown. Uh, we heard a lot of the same talk about making changes, preventing police departments from hiring officers who've been troubled in other cities and towns. And yet here we are again. Uh, and here we are again with a, a major trial that people are watching every minute of, it seems, on television. I'm referring, of course, to the Chauvin case. Um, it just seems like not much has changed. Would you disagree with that? I think that much has changed in many places and in a place where something has not changed enough and an incident occurs and it reaches this national level, then it makes us feel like nothing has changed in many places. Much has, but we still have these singular incidents that then bring conversations to light, cause from police officers and citizens alike um, uh, who saw that tape um, condemnation of what happened and that was across the board. So much has changed, much, many more improvements can be made. Um, and, and I think it's, it's a challenge is some standardization across the nation from state to state and locality to locality. And I think that, that that's one of the main pieces that IACP is looking to work on with the Biden administration. And that is embedded in, in some of our initiatives that really speak to, you know, I talked about a national uh, decertification database, nationally reporting use of force standards for transparency. So I think a key here is really around the topic of standardization as best as, as we can get it while respecting individual state rights and individual community complexities. Do you think there should be another commission on policing? Well, there was. First of all, yes, we should always look at the criminal justice system in totality, not just separating policing out of that system. Um, the work that was done in the task force on 21st century policing was widely adopted and it's good work and it's solid work. Most recently in December of 2020, 
the report was released that was the result of the executive order um, signed by the Trump administration to create a commission to look at the administration of justice in totality. That is also a good report. But a judge, a federal judge, said essentially that there wasn't enough community representation here. There was a lawsuit uh, preventing the release of that report. Correct. So it's tainted. Well, I I don't know that it's tainted, but it's not complete. How's that? Um, And to have the voices that you just talked about to be included on, on the topic furthers the conversation and the work that's done. So what IACP advocates is we shouldn't throw out anything. We shouldn't throw out the 21st century, uh, the task force report on policing. We shouldn't throw out the work that's been done in the commission report that was that was just released in December. But what we need to do is reconvene with all parties and build from there. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to America Change Forever. As we look at the trial of Derek Chauvin, we're going to take a look back at what happened last May as the death of George Floyd sparked protests across the country. Minneapolis police officer Alex King met George Floyd while responding to a reported forgery at the Cup Foods convenience store. All right, what's your name? George. George? George Floyd. Floyd had allegedly used a fake $20 bill to buy cigarettes. Police said they restrained Floyd because he had resisted arrest, but he was already in handcuffs when officers were moving him into the back of their squad car. Floyd insisted that he was having trouble breathing because he was recovering from the coronavirus. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. By this time, backup, including Officer Derek Chauvin, had arrived. Chauvin, the training officer on the scene, was one of the people to pull Floyd from the vehicle more than seven minutes after he'd first been arrested. On the ground. On the ground. Proceeding to pin Floyd's neck with his knee. As the situation escalated, bystanders demanded that Chauvin take his knee off George Floyd and begged Officer Tutau to make sure Floyd was still breathing. 
Is he breathing right now? Check his pulse. Check his pulse. Check his pulse. By the time the ambulance arrived and Chauvin finally removed his knee, Floyd had already appeared to be unconscious for several minutes. He'd been pinned down for about nine minutes. When he was loaded into the ambulance, Floyd was still in handcuffs. He was pronounced dead at the hospital. Say his name! Floyd's death became the focal point for a summer of emotional protest against police brutality and racial inequality. Chauvin's trial is expected to last a month or longer. The city of Minneapolis is bracing for unrest. Other cities are monitoring how the trial unfolds. DeRavis Thomas is still waiting for the officer who shot his son in 2016 to go on trial. DeRavis, or D. Thomas as he likes to be known, is paying close attention to how the Floyd story ends too. I'm praying for that family. I'm hoping and, and, I'm hoping and very prayerful um, for their family because I know what it's like to not get justice. And I would like for them to at least be one of the families, one of the first families to get justice, to actually get justice. I, I would love to celebrate them receiving justice, even though I have, we can't celebrate us receiving justice. So definitely I'm prayerful for them. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of America Change Forever. Next week, we'll examine how the pandemic led to innovation that will change America for decades to come. ACF is produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhall. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.